Thank you, Hannah and Trevor. And uh, Angie, thank you for leading us in worship. That was that was great. Let's pray. Holy Father, we look to you to teach us, to lead us, to guide us, to empower us. We look to you, Father, and the gift of your Holy Spirit, that we might be found to be um, worthy stewards of your grace that we might be found on that day when the Lord Jesus returns, we might be found doing, actively engaged in your will, your purposes, and your plans. And Father, this morning we ask that you would teach us specifically, help us to learn, and then to apply it. That the name of Jesus may be exalted because of us, and in our midst, and through us. And we thank you in his precious name. Amen. Peter, in his first letter, he wrote, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. It's an interesting statement. How, how many times have you asked, been asked about the hope that you hold? I don't recall ever being asked. Are we supposed to be living lives that are so different from the rest of the world that people will ask questions? I just leave it for you to think about that one. We've been engaged in a series looking at various topics related to the Great Commission the commission that all of us have to teach, to share the Lord Jesus and all that He has taught us. And I don't know if this is the last one, but certainly it's a summary. The topic is sharing your faith with someone who is leaning toward no faith or some other faith. Well, if you've ever tried to share your faith with anyone, you almost certainly have run into this issue. Because the fact is that everyone, without exception, has a faith. None of us can escape. None of us can claim to be without faith. We believe that God is, or we believe that God is not. It's a matter of faith. Or we believe that God is in a relevant term. Or we believe that perhaps there are many gods. 
The issue is not whether we are people of faith, because we all are. The issue is where, in what, or in whom do I place my faith? Of course, from the Christian perspective, there is only one valid object of our faith. The triune God. The God who revealed himself in history, and especially in the person, the life, the crucifixion, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as soon as we try to share our faith, we are in a clash of truth claims. And necessarily we need to be able to demonstrate that the Christ that we worship is worthy of that worship. And as a consequence, that all other worldviews, all other faiths are at best suspect and must much more likely false. Every worldview, every faith, whether organized into a formal religion or not, has to answer a few fundamental questions. How did we get here? Where are we going? How did things get so messed up? And how do we make it right? There's probably a couple others, but those will do for starters. Someone observed that it's far more likely that all faiths are wrong uh, than that all are right. But that's just the one the thing that makes the Christian faith unique. Of all the world's religions, of all the faiths of anyone, Christianity stands alone, or it falls alone on a documented historical event. If it could be shown that the resurrection of Jesus never happened, then we simply dissolve into a puddle of, with nothing to show for our faith, then hope so. That's it. That's all. There's nothing else. We know that. The problem that we face is getting to the point of being able to share our faith. Getting to the point of having someone else ask a question. In Acts 17, we have the record of Paul's uh, time in Athens. I invite you to turn there. Acts 17 and verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. While Paul was waiting in Athens 
for his colleagues to join him. He did what most of us would do in a strange city. He went sightseeing. And what he saw caused him a deep grief because he saw the emptiness of the gross idolatry of the city and he saw the inevitable consequences, the condemnation of God on all those who had not known the Lord Jesus Christ. And that provoked him into action. So Paul did what he normally did in a strange town. He went to the Jewish synagogue and he presented the gospel as clearly as he could to the Jews, his countrymen. After all, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah and the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of the Jews. And surely the Jews would be as upset with the widespread idolatry as Paul was. And other times, Paul went into the marketplace where he talked with anyone he could approach. Tradesmen, merchants, business leaders, possibly with members of the civic government, with soldiers, with some philosophers, apparently. The words translated reasoned and conversed carry the idea of dialogue, of a sharing of ideas, of discussion and debate. In other words, Paul was listening as much as he was talking. He was trying to understand the Athenians and their hearts and minds. Now Luke doesn't outline very much here. This is merely a brief summary of what was going on. But the philosophies that are represented here are interesting because in many ways they're similar to a lot of modern thought. Although we don't refer to these ancient names. The Epicureans were practical atheists. While they believed that there were many gods, for them the gods just didn't have much, if any, involvement in day-to-day life. So human life was at best described as the pursuit of pleasure in any and all forms and the avoidance of pain. Does that sound familiar? Human life, uh, in modern terms, their philosophy would be summed up as eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The sculptures of ancient Greece, while demonstrating incredible skill at capturing the human body in uh, any number of poses, also betrays their overtly sexualized society. Even the worship of their many gods was largely sexual in nature. Many of the temples had a staff of male and female prostitutes. The Stoics were only a little better They had a higher view of the gods and held to what today we would call pantheism. That is, they believed that God was to be found in all of nature. We see this type of philosophy today in Hinduism and in the Mother Earth 
worship that is expressed in many New Age teachings. But believing that the divine spark was within all living things, they felt that there was a rational principle that held the cosmic order together. In this way, pure reason became the one thing that connected them with the gods. And like the European philosophers during the Enlightenment period, reason ultimately became their god. Their attitude toward life was one of ultimate resignation. They prided themselves on their ability to take whatever came. In modern terms, their motto would have been grin and bear it, smile and nod. They urged moderation. Don't get over-emotional, either about tragedy or about happiness. Apathy was regarded as the highest virtue of life. And probably you've come across a few people today who feel that the best they can do is to take whatever comes and handle it as best they can. The Stoics were proud fatalists. And there are a lot of them today. Think Mr. Spock. From my limited reading, some of this also sounds a lot like some forms of Buddhism. Verse 18. Some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting for you bring some strange, uh, strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. The responses of Paul's attempts, or to Paul's attempts at dialogue are interesting and must have been thoroughly frustrating to Paul. For starters, there is no record of any response by the Jews. It seems as if they simply yawned and waited for him to finish. Somehow these strict monotheists lived in the middle of rank idolatry but were not moved to try to do anything about it. And then there were the Epicureans who accused Paul of being a babbler. Now the word here refers to a small bird that picks up seeds in a marketplace, for example, and then spits them out without digesting them. They thought that Paul had picked up scraps of ideas from here and there and was presenting them as profound, but with no depth of understanding. And besides, in their eyes, Paul had no credibility because he was not classically trained and had not studied Socrates or Plato or any of the others. The Stoics, on the other hand, thought that Paul was talking about foreign gods or foreign philosophies. They too could not grasp what Paul meant when he spoke of Jesus and the resurrection. But there was something that provoked interest. Maybe it was because a foreign Jew had the nerve to dialogue in the marketplace, to ask and to answer questions. Maybe his speaking of the resurrection spoke to their own mortality, their fear of death. 
Don't know. But whatever their motivation, they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know what these things mean. The Areopagus, or Mars Hill, was the place for formal debate and discussion. It was also the city hall of the day and the equivalent of the courthouse. Paul's response to the invitation is revealing. Maybe this will help us in our uh, discussions with those who do not yet embrace the Lord Jesus. Um, now, by the way, the uh, speeches in the Areopagus were never known for their brevity. Um, now, what, what we have here takes a minute or two to read. Um, it's probably, at best, an outline. And every sentence probably represents about 20 minutes of dialogue. So, just keep that in mind, that we have to fill in a lot of blanks here. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. If you're following, if you happen to be using the King James Version, you'll find some interesting, an interesting divergence in translation. Um, the word at the end of verse 22, in our versions translated as religious, uh, might be translated either as a, an affirmative thing or as a pejorative. It could be translated on the negative side as superstitious, and that's the way King James translates it. Uh, on the positive side, it could be just as correctly translated as spiritual or religious. And I think that Paul intended to leave the interpretation to his hearers, to just leave that double entendre hanging, let them figure out what he meant. But he started with a bit of a compliment. He started by commending their obvious search for God, as evidenced by the many statues to their various gods, and especially to their unknown God, their just-in-case God. Then Paul gently pointed out the logical fallacy in their religious pursuits. Does it make sense that a God who could create the whole earth that he could be contained within a physical temple or would need us to put food out for him? Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries for their dwelling place, 
that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward Him and find Him. When Paul was there, it had been a long time since Athens was the supreme power in the region. But the Athenians still smarted under that loss of prestige. The God who made everything also made from one man every nation under, uh, of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The people of Athens and Corinth and Rome had their times and seasons and the boundaries of their territories set by the same God who had created them. Besides, logic dictates that there can only be one supreme God. See, Paul was presenting truth in a logical form. God is not merely some tribal deity. He rules supreme, as he must or he could not be God. Paul was also presenting the purpose of God's creation of humanity, or as the Westminster Catechism put it, the supreme end of man. I've got to share a story. Uh, an old Presbyterian preacher who came to visit one day, and there was the, as he was sitting in the kitchen, the, the young son of the household came in, and the preacher, as was his reputation, spun around and faced the lad and fired off a question from the catechism You there? What is the supreme end of man? And the lad was kind of caught by surprise and probably hadn't been to Sunday school very much. And he said, um, would that be the end with the head? <laughs> uh, supreme end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And here Paul states that the greatest pursuit of humanity is to seek God. And in a way, that's exactly the pursuit in which the Athenians were engaged. But the Greek and Roman gods were always a means to an end, a means to some other thing. There was Artemis, the goddess of prosperity and money. So if that was your need, you went to her temple and made your offerings there. Ares was the god of war, the brother of Athena. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and politics. So if you wanted to be really smart, or if you needed a building permit, you worshipped her. Nike, or Nike, the goddess of victory, was worshipped by athletes and warriors and Michael Jordan, made you run faster and jump higher and soar over the competition. Aphrodite was the goddess of sexuality and beauty and fertility and so on. 
But the living and true God is of a different kind altogether. He is so glorious and so transcendent that He is His own reward. It is enough just to get to know Him. And He cannot be looked on as a means toward anything else. It is enough just to know Him. Verse 27. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us, for in, whom, in Him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own pro- poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Um, so, you notice what Paul did? Are you following in your Bibles? Um, did you notice the quotation marks? Paul is quoting not from Scripture, but from popular poetry. The first quotation is from a song to Zeus, written about 600 B.C. And the second was from a poem written about 250 B.C. In Greek terms, that's current. In other words, Paul was sufficiently well-versed in the Athenian culture. That's part of his dialoguing beforehand. That he could show where they'd stumbled onto the truth or where they were asking the right questions. And then Paul concludes his proclamation of the existence of nature of God. Since He is the transcendent Creator of all, it's not possible to reduce Him to something I can hold in my hand. Years ago, I came across a quotation to the effect that the fool tries to get God into his head. The wise man is content to get his head into God. And once Paul had laid out his defense of monotheism in the face of a polytheistic culture, he could then present the Gospel. Verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Repentance is necessary because all of us are sinners. But God's grace is evident even in that command. Because God could justly condemn every one of us to death without any further warning. He'd just wipe us off the face of the earth. 
And that would be justice. That God is gracious is again underlined in the statement, He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He appointed. He delays to give us space to repent. And He's given us warning and He's demonstrated His love and His grace in the Lord Jesus. Jesus has come. God, God the Son has come. And that He is God is proven by His resurrection from the dead. Verse 32, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. This is three or four hours later. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Some have criticized Paul, seeing the Athens record as a failure of evangelism, because we hear nothing more about Athens in the New Testament. Paul never wrote a letter to Athens, or at least we have no record of any further communication between Paul and the Christians there. But an argument from silence is pretty weak when you consider that most of the letters of Paul that we have were written to correct various issues, could it be that the Athenian church never ran into serious problems during Paul's lifetime? But the point Luke is making is that some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, and a woman named Damaris, and others. They heard the message. They were intrigued to the point of wanting to hear more. They came to faith in the Lord Jesus. Now here's a question. Why did Luke record the names? I mean, who was Dionysius? Who was... Damaris. We don't know. But I'll guarantee that to Luke's first readers, they were known. And that's why he named them. Turned out that Dionysius was an inf influential person. He was one of the judges of the Areopagus. And he became the first bishop of of the church in Athens. So, you know, there was, there was something there. And something happened in Athens in spite of the very sparse record. So in presenting the gospel to people who lean toward atheism or toward other religions, perhaps we would do well to follow Paul's example. He was provoked at the idolatry that he saw. He found a point of agreement. 
point, but a point of agreement. He opened a dialogue with them. He was then able to expose the insufficiency of their answers. He was able to proclaim the greatness of God. And he always drove toward the resurrection. When Paul saw the impressive structures of Athens, they neither impressed him nor intimidated him. Now, Timmins doesn't have much in the way of impressive architecture, unless you count a mining head frame. Um, but as a city, we spend a lot of money on recreation and sports. Does it grieve us that more glory is given to those things than to God? When you see things like Stars and Thunder, or the Oscars, the Academy Awards, what emotion fills you? Paul was so provoked by the idolatry that he saw that he did not run from it. Rather, he ran toward the people involved in in compassion. What about points of agreement? Listening to a podcast this week, and uh, someone was quoted, a name I didn't catch. He said, it only takes one point of agreement to start a conversation. As human beings, we are deeply and incurably religious. God created us with a hunger for Him. A hunger to know Him and to worship Him. All of us need to be able to answer the ultimate questions concerning how we got here and where we're going and how everything fell apart and what what we're going to do about it. We just need to learn how to find points of agreement with the other. Ask a question. Make a statement based on an observation that you have of the other person. Like, You know, I admire the way that you want your life to matter. Or, I can see that you really care about the future of your kids. Something simple. The point of agreement. There's an old saying that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar, with the possible exception of fruit flies. Um, We want to be winsome in our approach. Asking genuine questions is a good way to open dialogue and it doesn't really come across as preachy if they're genuine questions. One question I've tried is, what do you think happens after you die? And just let the other person answer. And then follow with another question. Then you get into a point where you can begin to expose the insufficiency of their answers. Again, questions will help them see the flaws in their worldview or in their motivations. A question something like, how is that working for you? Are your efforts at changing things uh, working like you hoped they would? Something like that may help them to see 
the problem. And only when they see the problem will they be open to hear a solution. The core of Paul's message is that God is so much bigger than the idols that he is, and that he is seeking us far more than we seek him. The real God is so large, so infinite, so powerful, so wise, that he is often unexplainable. Sometimes that's frustrating because it leaves us with questions that we simply can't answer. But of course, if he is infinitely wise, there are going to be things about him and his plans that I cannot understand that I, and that he cannot explain to my satisfaction. Evelyn Underhill put it this way, if God were small enough to be understood, he would not be big enough to be worshipped. The resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Everything. And that's why it's always such a key point in the gospel presentations by the apostles. It's in the resurrection that we see Jesus as God in the flesh. Where we see the greatness of God on display. And where we see the poverty of any other explanation. The gospel is primarily an announcement followed with a question. And the question is, who do you say that Jesus is? There's going to be reactions to the presentation, no matter how careful we are. There will be those who mock there will be those who need to think about it more. There will be those who will respond in some fashion. We need to be prepared for all of them. So don't be surprised if there is no on-the-spot conversion when you share the good news. It's not likely to happen. Not on the spot. Think about it. How many times did you have to be told before you responded. I can't count the number of times I had to be told. You know, but we're, as human beings, we're all slow learners. We really are. It takes us a while. And even after we've come to the Lord Jesus and we've known Him for 20 or 30 years, He still finds Himself having to teach us the same lesson over and over and over and over again. Sometimes we get it on the sixth or seventh time around. Sometimes. Anyway, so we need to be expecting that. If, if we didn't come to the Lord instantly, guaranteed no one else will either. So, now, I know we're over time. This is the kind of stuff, though, that really needs... I, 
I can tell you. But none of us are going to learn it until we put it into practice. We need to be role-playing. We need to be practicing. We need to be doing it. And unfortunately, this, this kind of place, it just doesn't, just doesn't work. We need, we need to be getting together and, and trying it and then going out and doing it. So, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you, Lord, for putting this whole world before us. Um, including the people we love our, and our neighbors and our friends, our colleagues, our co-workers. Lord, there are so many opportunities for us to share. Help us to be the kind of people to live the kind of lives that will cause them to ask questions. And help us also, Lord, to be ready to ask questions of them, to help them to explore the questions as well. Lord, help us to, uh, to bring You glory and praise and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.